deliverance. One of the reasons um, I was making those comments about temperature, uh, again, harking back to our, our friend Daniel, um, one of the effects of his injury uh, was that it, he has no um, control over his body temperature. So he's like a lizard. His body will just go to, to air temperature. Um, so on a day like today, or, or like, say, Yesterday up at Abayagiri, it was about 106. He would be, his body would go to 106 degrees because that's the air temperature. So one of my, my uh, but he has no uh, sensation of that. He doesn't, he doesn't know that he's hot. He just knows he has to cool things down because he can discern certain physiological effects, but it's not like... Um, Gee, it's hot here because he, he, below his his chest he has no feeling, except it's a, well rather it's like a, a an amorphous cloud of of unfocused painful feeling. And one of my earliest memories of him, he used to have this big this big van that he would he could uh, we, his wheelchair could uh, uh, be lifted up to on this hydraulic platform and he'd wheel it into place and he could drive this this big old van around and. Uh, we were driving down um, I-5 in this van, and he didn't have any air conditioning in it. And um, we were kind of scooting along, and he said, I didn't, I didn't know him that well at that time, he said, could you um, reach into that ice chest, and could you get some, some ice cubes and put them down my shirt, please? <laughs> the, met, the floor of the van was, was just like sheet metal. I said, what? Says, um, yeah, I, I'm overheating. Uh, I think air temperature is, is, is above 100, so um, I need to cool down. So could you, could you put this ice? And he had his seatbelt tied tight, and he just had me stuff his shirt with ice cubes. And then had like an ice pack on his head, so he's running, kind of water running down his face. He's, ah, oh, that's good. I think that's better. So he, he could tell that there was some, you know, that, that his body was starting to get sort of feverish, but he, couldn't ha he didn't have the feeling of being hot. So that uh, when, when, you, when you live with someone like that, you're around someone whose set of perceptions are, are completely different than the, the average person or your own, that uh, you start to ask questions about what is, that, what is hotness? You know, he can't feel it, but he knows there's certain signals that tell him, if I don't do something, there's going <laughs> to be trouble. Like a person, who, if you don't have sensation in your hand, if, if your arm or your leg's gone to sleep, and then you can um, not be aware that you're actually touching a, a, a very hot radiator. And then when the feeling comes back into your hand, like, ow! Where was the temperature before the nerves started registering it? Yeah. Or like when you touch something that's, that's really freezing cold, and, but you're, the first sensation is of being burnt. Yeah. So perception is very subjective. And that um, are not... Uh, pretending that, that uh, we can just snap our fingers and say, pain's not painful. <laughs> but just having that little bit of perspective on it can make all the difference. And 
So one of the, the, the this last aspect of the, the teachings, I thought just to, to mention briefly, and then we'll have time for some more discussion questions, is that fundamentally when, when the Buddha said, why don't I seek that which is the, uh, the unborn, the unailing, the, the sorrowless, the supreme release from bondage, uh, nibbana, that the doorway to that, that release is this very quality of awareness. One of the, the Buddha's most well-known teachings is in the Dhammapada. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. Oh. <laughs> Don't like that. <laughs> The mindful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. He, the Buddha was very good at catching our attention in his phraseology. So the, um, but that quality of mindfulness, that, that heedful awareness, appamada in Pali, that's the doorway. That's the door to the deathless, the door to, to liberation. Um, when he says the mindful never die, it doesn't mean to say that the bodies don't stop breathing. <laughs> but it means that there's a, a radical non-identification, a non-entanglement with the, with the body, with feelings. So and in, maybe in, in, during this last sitting or other times, you've had a sense of when there is that really clear and pure awareness, there can be an absolutely uh, clear perception of, yeah, there's this feeling. This is a, a hot feeling or a painful feeling or a delightful feeling. Yeah, that, and this is just a feeling. That's all it is. And the feeling is one thing and the awareness of it is another, right? Even if it's just like for half a second, most of us have had that, uh, uh, that kind of experience, had that intuition, just for a moment. That's the key. <laughs> that, that intuitive sense of, oh, look at that. It's an intense experience, but that which is aware of it is not entangled with it. It's not, it's not intrinsically enmeshed in that. That's, that's the escape hatch. That's the key. And that the, the, the mysterious thing is, is that when I say words like escape hatch, you think, well, escapism, that's not good. I want to be one with everything. <laughs> but uh, we're, what we're escaping from is confusion. Uh, we're escaping from alienation. And that when there is that kind of radical letting go, that, that radical non-entanglement, when we, we're really uh, training the heart to, to be that knowing and to not uh, get identified, caught up with the different experiences of happiness and unhappiness, then there's a, a, a mysterious attunement. We actually become far more attuned to life. By letting go of, of it completely, we find ourselves uh, utterly attuned. It's like again like the, the orchestral... Um, Example, if you're playing a piece of music or you're singing, it's when you let go of self-concern, you're totally uh, attuned, you're, you're absolutely fixed on the conductor or the, you're, uh, you're listening very, very carefully, but you let go of yourself and then your voice or your instrument goes to exactly the right, uh, the right note. The, the, there's the, the, the quality of what comes forth is perfectly attuned. Then if the mind goes, oh, look, I got it, then that's the, the guaranteed bum note <laughs> experience. So it's, it's mysterious the way that it works. 
but uh, it's through that kind of um, learning to uh, be that knowing that we are able to fully attend to the body, to look after its needs, take care of our, our aging process, to, uh, to learn the lessons that, that come from that, and to be able to um, uh, free the heart from any kind of limitation on account of that. The, um, so it, it's a, a lot to do with learning how not to identify with the, and get caught up in the, the messages of the senses, of what we see and hear and feel and smell and taste and touch, and to, to learn how to, to uh, live our life centered from the, the quality of the heart or the, the awareness itself. This is, is obviously not easy to do. It's, it's, it's difficult uh, indeed. But when we can, can do that, then we find ourselves um, uh, in a way more, uh, more radically attuned to life and able to respond to our own needs and to the, the needs of others around us. So it's not just our own aging and, and sickness uh, that we deal with or in a skillful way, but that of, of everyone that we, we share this, this world with. So if there are any uh, questions or, or things that people would like to, to bring up, Yes, stand in the corner here. Um, thank you for bringing up others that are aging or sick. I think that uh, my experience has been when I have illness in my own body, uh, to some extent aging too, it's much easier than hanging out for any significant period of time with people who have some kind of disgusting illness or are very slow mentally and physically or complaining or in some way dealing with their aging. And I would love it if the Sangha spoke a little bit about the experience of being with others who are aging, which I think puts it in your face. The fear of what could happen uh, is put in... I find it's put in my face much more directly. And in our culture, I would say that there's no question that we are abandoning our elders uh, just uh, in vast numbers. And I think it has to do with um, the ability for people to really be with the challenges of, of aging and the fears of what will happen to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's a huge issue. Um, we, we tend, to, as a culture, we tend to relate to, to the elders as, as different species. It's like them, old people, and... Uh, Right, yes. and uh, hmm? the olds, the olds, and also people who are on that that side of the line, or who, um, yeah, conventionally speaking, described that way. Also, that that's their experience of becoming invisible to the to the rest of society. There's a very interesting experiment done. I've mentioned this on different uh, events before. I forget the woman's name, but she was she was either a psychologist or a sociologist. 
um, and she uh, she was doing a study of aging. Maybe she was a gerontologist, but uh, she was doing a study of the perceptions of aging, and she used herself as a um, a kind of uh, experimental sample. So what she did was she she created a script for a number of situations. She would go into a government office, she'd go into a hardware store, she'd go into a department store, she'd go into a bus station, to a train station, go to buy an air ticket, um, various different scenarios. And she created a careful script uh, that she would follow uh, in, in these different situations. And I think she was in her early 30s, she was like 32, 35, something like that. And so the, the first set of, uh, of encounters she did dressed... Um, as a sort of young, smart woman about town. And she, uh, uh, she went into these different uh, services and shops and so on. And then she carefully recorded the responses of the, the staff who, who related to her and, and how she was treated. She then um, she had a, a Hollywood makeup artist then work with her and who rigged her up to look 40 years older and dyed her hair and gave her wrinkles and put her in, in uh, older clothes and, and stiffened her joints, you know, kind of put, put um, sort of binders on her joints and, and kind of stiffeners on her, her, her knees and taught her how to walk so that she looked like someone that was, that was 40 years older. So you know, maybe <coughs> that someone who was over 70, early 70s, mid-70s. And then she, f- she went into the exact same... Uh, shops and, and, and services and, and followed exactly the same script or tried to. Some places she couldn't even get seen. Like they just, you know, she would just sort of stand there like sort of trying to be a customer and, like, and literally she was not seen. And uh, it was a really extraordinary um, uh, analysis that she, that she described. And, and also on a person, she was trying to be the objective scientist <coughs> But she said, in the middle of some of these runs, she wanted to sort of pull her wig off and say, look, I'm 32. You know, stop treating me like this. You know. But she restrained herself. But it was, uh, it was really powerful um, and, uh, and revealing how uh, and shocking, really shocking that supposedly you know, uh, unbiased and, and public services and, and shops and that were just treated her totally differently. Um, the um, I th- to to just even be thinking in terms of um, being with an old person, <laughs> you know, just that, just even the way we hold it in in this conversation is that well, it's like being with us really. It's it's not. Uh, I think anything that c- that can ameliorate that sense of old people are a different <coughs> group or a different. Uh, in a different category, but, but our society doesn't really allow that. You know, it's, a, it's the consumer society, mm-hmm. and that also it's a performing society. And once you've passed a certain age, you can't perform unless you can kind of really crank it out <laughs> in terms of energy and keep performing in some way. Then you become a, a, a quote unquote a useless member of society, and that's this deeply destructive. Attitude and and uh, I feel that's a very incredibly sad and, and harmful. You know, not just to the people, the the older people who are being sort of rejected and left in um, homes for the aged in Florida and you know everywhere, Sun City, <laughs> retirement homes, um, 
but also for the, the younger people, because we tend to think that, well, what's the point of living if I can't be young and beautiful or fully active and have all my faculties? Why don't I just sort of finish it off? Because there's no point hanging around if I can't you know, be mobile and see and hear and think clearly. What's the point? I'm useless. Oh, just throw me on the rubbish heap, right? I mean, people often will say that. I'm, I, I feel so, I'm old and useless. Because the society keeps putting out those messages that if you're not uh, creating or consuming or, or in some way actively engaged, you're thereby useless. So the, uh, I mean, it's easy to typecast things, but it is, it's extraordinary how different it is in Asia where older people are the treasures of the society. And that it's, sort of, it, it's, a, an autom- it's an automatic given that the older that you are, the more, wor- the more worthy you are <laughs> and the more that you are valued and, and treasured as a person. At, uh, there's a, a friend of ours um, who has one sister who's a, a businesswoman in Los Angeles and another sister who's an aid worker in India. The one who works in L.A., there's absolutely no way that she would not dye her hair. She could not survive in business in L.A. unless she kind of did herself and had the whole sort of hair dye and makeup and, uh, and that thing. The sister who works in India, her gray hair opens all kinds of doors. That's her passage to respectability, is having gray hair. You know, she's, oh, auntie, please come in. <laughs> she's uh, she's a, a gracious elder lady, and because of the gray hair, she can get things done that she couldn't do when she was younger. Because she's older, therefore she's more worthy of respect. So that kind of, um, I mean, you can't just decide to have a, a, a shift in consciousness, but in terms of looking after people and caring for ourselves, that's a, a uh, just to be able to hold each other in that way, to, 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 to relate to each other in that way. And when people make, uh, elder members of our families and friends make those kind of comments, just don't go along with it. <laughs> I don't, you know. I'll just try to to say that's that's not a that's not a helpful way to think. You know, no way are you are you useless, or no way uh, just because you're you're not uh, holding a job down that doesn't make you useless at all. You're you're a a fully active and and, wor- and worthy human being. So he, all the little ways that we as individuals can can support that I think is is helpful for the culture. Not uh, not going along with that, and also just the way that uh, it, it's it's kind of dismaying how people feel that um, to, be, to be worthy or when, you, when you're really old, you're like you're 80 or you're 90, and to have a sort of really active life and to be admirable, you've got to be kind of breakdancing or, <laughs> or you've got to be part of a, you know, a, a, you know, a cheerleader or, a, or a, you're kind of surfing team. It's like, to me, uh, I, I would see that a, a worthy elder person can just sit as long as they want on the veranda and watch as many leaves turn as they like. <laughs> you don't have to be waving pom-poms or riding on a surfboard when you're 90 <laughs> in order to be worthwhile. I think it's, it's a, sad, a sad thing that you've got to be doing something or sort of producing some such or be seen as, as kind of mimicking a, a younger or more vigorous person. I mean, it's great to be active and to, go, you know, to, to be vigorous, but to be feeling that you've got to be mimicking someone who's 50 years younger than you are in order to have a sense of worth, that, that seems very sad and, and kind of beside the point. Um, 
I think it's certainly, I, would in, uh, I see the worth of people putting effort into staying healthy and energetic. My mother, when she, uh, when she turned 60, she was always very limber. I, I've inherited her, her loose hips, which I'm very grateful for, and Kimon, <laughs> and all the goldsmiths. So I've got, uh, at the moment, <laughs> temporarily, I have wonderfully flexi- flexible hips that I inherited from my mother. So we, I grew up in a, in a very old uh, cottage in England that was built in the 15th century. It had very low ceilings. And my mother, to prove that she was still limber on her 60th birthday, she kicked her her foot over her head, and she actually broke her toe <laughs> on, the, on the beam. She broke her toe on the ceiling. They did have champagne for breakfast, I do admit. But <laughs> she had champagne for breakfast on her 60th birthday. But prior to that, you know, she just, she just uh, looked after the animals on the little farm and just sort of potted about. But she thought, okay, I'm not going to go along with becoming decrepit. So she started um, exercising. She joined the local gym and started playing badminton and then when her eyesight started to go and she couldn't play badminton anymore her, her badminton playing friends would always knock the shuttlecock onto her blind side so, <laughs> so she couldn't see <laughs> so she got fed up with that and so she bit, uh, she bid the badminton team goodbye and then she started swimming and her rule was that if she got wet she would swim 24 lengths and in the local pool where she, in the town where she lived the, the, the um the old age pensioners, <laughs> they had the use of the school pool. There's a big boarding school in this, this town, Sherburn. And the, uh, the elders of the town had the pool free use um, in the morning. Uh, they had an hour, and then they were in two groups. And they, each group had half an hour. So my mother would swim 24 lengths in half an hour. Three weeks before she died, she was disgruntled because she could only manage 20 lengths. So, <laughs> Because her rule was, if I get wet, I do 24 lengths. And she just got to 20 and was <laughs> couldn't, couldn't do any more. So How old was she? 83. <laughs> yeah, so she, you know, she, was, a, she was a pretty sp- sprightly and, and determined character. Um, uh, and she had, she had pancreatic cancer. That's, what, that's how she died. And I certainly saw that it was incredibly beneficial to her the first 20-plus years that she made active effort to keep things going. She also started doing crossword puzzles. Keep the, she was very much use it or lose it mentality. But, and so I, I, I certainly see the worth uh, in that, you know, preserving your faculties as long as, you, as long as you can. That's definitely to be encouraged. Um, but there's a way that then it can, it can slip beyond that to, you know, I don't want to be old because old is bad. Right? And that uh, I feel it's, 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 it's injurious to, to the ourselves as individuals or to kind of as a society, holding that up. <laughs> it's, uh, it's old is old. <laughs> it's just part of the human cycle. And that it's, a, um, uh, I think, more helpful to us as individuals to, uh, to be ready to, to respect the, the experience and wisdom of age and also just to be able to and go along with its changes, and, and then for the rest of the, the family and friends to, to move in and to, to cater for uh, the uh, the elder as their abilities diminish. You know? And rather than saying, "Oh, just put me in a home," just forget. <laughs> just uh, I don't want to be I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to, I don't want you to bother with me. Just uh, I, I would deeply encourage people to say no. <laughs> <laughs> this one point, I'm going to argue. <laughs> 
you're not a burden, but uh, uh, it's my delight and honor and an expression of gratitude to help look after you. So, yes, gentleman in the maroon shirt. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, as an extension of that, um, was there any ever discussion with, when Ajahn Chah was unresponsive, basically, and they were taking care of him? Was any discussion about just withholding food and allowing him to die? I mean, is that considered uh, against the Buddhist will? Or, I mean, could someone say, because uh, that happens a lot around mm-hmm. here, so oh, yeah. winds up in that situation and one has to decide whether should keep him going or, or not? Well, he made explicit instructions from the Dharma seat that was recorded saying, absolutely no way should you use any artificial means of keeping me alive. And then when the time came, <laughs> nobody could say, today we stop feeding the Ajahn. So he was fed through a, a tube through his nose. Had to, and it just... Even though it's, yeah, but that's what Lung Po wanted. You know, he's made explicit instructions, but it's like <laughs> nobody could do it. And at, at first, when well, after he was initially disabled, and they 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 tried to feed him that way, you know, he would pull the tubes out, and and then and it would make for about six weeks. He made it really clear: I don't want this. This isn't what I was after. You're not following my my guidance. And then after six weeks, he said, oh, "Forget it." <laughs> Resistance is futile. And so then he just went with it. He just stopped making an issue out of it and said, okay, they want to keep me alive, I'll stay alive. So there was nothing coming from the side of the people who had taken care of him. People were very happy to look after him as long as was necessary. But um, just making that that decision, of, okay, t- from today on we stop, the, we stop the feeding. He wasn't on a respirator but it would have been just withdrawing the food. But, you know, th- those are difficult decisions. Uh, as, a, as a Buddhist monastic, we can't encourage uh, the deliberate ending of life. Uh, and so that... Um, but if someone is, is dying naturally, then we're not, it's not incumbent on us to, 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 to follow... Our kind of artificial means to keep them alive. If someone is, is dying, then it's, um, at least according to our monastic rule, and then there's not, uh, we're not sort of forced to intervene. But if someone, if we can you know, allow someone to die if they're dying naturally. That would include like a feeding tube or antibiotics or things? It like depends that. on who you talk to. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a gray area, and it's it's very. The, in our community, there was considerable tension because of particularly of the care of Ajahn Chah. People thought that he should have been better looked after, or he should have been allowed to pass away when he wanted to. So, it's it's a a, a gray area, and it's, but it's a, a, a thing that people have to decide on for themselves. It's not Thank an you. easy one, you know when. Um, when my, f- my father had a... a uh, not that I have to spend the afternoon talking about my family, but this is an example. Um, my father had an aneurysm in his aorta. So his aorta split and he was... Um, he, he blacked out and he was bleeding into his, his body cavity. They didn't realize it at first and they gave him blood thinners. 
because he'd had a heart attack about 13 years before. When they realized what had happened like a day and a half later, then there was very, not much they could do. They, they called us in, into the hospital, my mother and my younger sister and myself, and said, um, typical English understatement, um, Mr. Horner's very poorly. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, he'll last a few more hours. And they, and they said, well, we have two choices. We could either allow him to, to pass away naturally, or we could get the crash team in and can open him up and try and repair things and, and remove all the fluid and, and reestablish his um, blood levels and so on. And uh, my mother and my sister both said, well, no, just let, he wouldn't want that. Just let him pass away. And so, and I was there in the room. So it was, I was part of that, that, that group. I mean, they, they actually did the speaking and I, I didn't uh, object, but that was, that was quite, I don't have any qualms about that or guilt about that, but it seemed you know, totally appropriate. That was the family's choice. And, and we also felt that it would be my father's choice too. It would have been probably very unlikely that he would have been able to be survived and, and um, it would have been a, very invasive to try and do that. He was he was already eighty. So. Okay, any other question? Yeah, with the pink. I wanted to um, respond to a part of what you had said that was very near and dear to me, because I'd spent twelve years caregiving my father, who passed away when he was ninety-one. And I was looking for comfort. And how do you, um, how do you, be intimate with someone who has what you phrased a disgusting illness? And um, I have three comforts I thought I'd share <laughs> that worked for me. Um, uh, let's see. The uh, the first is um, I thought of my father as a heavenly messenger. He was the uh, quintessential aging, illness, and death. And from there, I used to look at him and uh, try to appreciate uh, the gift that I'd, I was able to be there and have him in my life, and also to be grateful for my relative youth and health. <laughs> and uh, that was a comfort. Um, the second was something Ram Das said when I sat with him once in San Francisco. He said, there's great reward in suffering. And I was curious about that because I was suffering a lot watching my father disintegrate. And uh, he went on to say that when you're aware of your suffering, um, you become very compassionate for the person. You also fall in love with the person you take care of. And you become more fully human. And that comforted me a lot. I began to have the hubris of thinking of myself as becoming more fully human. The third is the last thing I read in um, uh, the Findhorn Foundation at the uh, Shambhala Retreat Center in Scotland, where I was last month. And it was something on the wall that the Dalai Lama had said. I tried to memorize it. And he said that we're all visitors on this planet, and we have 90 or 100 years here at the very most. During that time, it's important and beautiful and skillful to try to find some meaning in our lives. And if you can contribute to the happiness of others, you found true meaning. And when I read that, 
I realized that my life hadn't been kind of a waste in a way I thought it had. I'd never married and had children, but I'd contributed greatly to the happiness of my father. Mm. And it comforted me a lot after the fact. So if anyone can take any comfort, the last thing I just thought of is the night my father died, he opened his eyes. He hadn't for a while. And he put both of his hands in my hands and tried to speak. Nothing came out. But I thought he gave me Darshan. That was something I'd been reading about in a book by Rachel Remen. And so I feel blessed by it. So yes, it's disgusting, but there's another side of it that's uh, a source of self-love, and there are many comforts, and it's life-transforming. And when you look back on it, it really does make you more fully human. Yeah, and, and free from regrets. Yeah, I'm sure when you think of, of that, you, you feel very uh, very joyful. Yes, I feel blessed. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, just uh, an, another little story about my, my mother. When her mother was in her 90s, and she'd been um, pretty much comatose for the last four years of her life. And uh, she lived in a, a little nursing home close to my cousin's. Very, actually, quite near the monastery where I lived in southern England. And my mother would drive about 100, 100 miles from Kent to go and see her every week in, the, in this nursing home where she lived. And, uh, and my grandmother apparently would wake up occasionally, but it would always be in the middle of the night when my mother was never there. So for, for the last four years of her life, whenever my mother visited, my grandmother was completely out of it, apparently. But she came every week and spent time with her. And, and then... Um, she had a, a, a kind of growth in her cheek that was obstructing her breathing, and so she started to get um, bronchitis and then, and then turned into pneumonia, I think. And so then they, the doctors who were looking after her said, well, you know, the, if we try to operate on this, this growth, then she might not survive the anesthetic, and we give her antibiotics, she might not survive the antibiotics. So you know, they asked the family, what would you like us to do? And so they said, because she'll probably pass away within a couple of days if we don't do anything. So my mother had come down for this family conference and, and they're discussing you know, what, uh, what should be done. And, and they, they decided that, uh, that my grandmother would probably just prefer to, to pass away naturally. And so when my mother was there during that, that time, so for four years she had only ever seen her mother just you know, lying uh, recumbent and, and non-responsive. Uh, that, on that day, like two days before my grandmother died, when my mother was sitting by her bedside, she opened her eyes, looked at her, and said, thank you. So somehow it was like she sort of scrambled to the... <laughs> Hi, Granny. She sort of scrambled to the edge of consciousness and just was able to, just like your father, just like, I know you've been there all this time and I'm, and I, I'm really grateful, but just prior to that, just couldn't gather everything together to get to the surface. But people know. And so that's one of the things also I find is where people say, oh, just if I'm you know, unconscious, or just switch the machine off or don't, don't, don't just keep me going. But there, there's... Um, all kinds of accounts of people who are apparently completely unconscious or comatose or, or sort of non-responsive, they have a very active inner life going on. 
that then they might be able to talk about once they come out of the coma. Um, but uh, I, I also think that it's very much uh, materialistic thinking that says this is a useless person. I mean, they're just kind of lying there breathing. They're not, they're not doing anything. They're, they're not really alive. But actually there can be a whole very, uh, very real and rich life going on. It's just not visible from the outside world. And, and that experience of my grandmother had a very powerful impact on me. And that uh, just that don't be presumptuous. Don't, don't take things for granted. And that the, it's kind of our materialistic conditioning that if just someone's lying there not doing anything, but it's rather like, what do you do on a meditation retreat? I mean, it's, it's just sit there with your eyes closed. You're just kind of, you're not doing anything. You say, not doing anything. <laughs> you're out of your mind. You wouldn't believe what I'm doing <laughs> sitting there. You know, a hundred people sitting in a room. And, and think, you know, they're just sitting there. They're not doing anything. What a waste of time. Right? But from the inside, there's a heck of a lot going on. So I'd say it's a totally comparable... It's not that people on retreats are not, not comatose, but... <laughs> stupefied, maybe, sometimes. <laughs> but um, that those kind of uh, qualities of caring and presence... Like so, someone today earlier was saying, well, if you're going to be with a, uh, an older person or a dying person, you know, if they're non-responsive, what's the uh, what's the best way of, of looking after them? What kind of prayers should they recite? And I said, yeah, more than prayers, or, or 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 they were suggesting, well, maybe they should recount all the good deeds they've done. I said, well, it's probably best to keep it more general, because you don't know why they were doing those good deeds. Yeah. Maybe they were paying off something. <laughs> something else would happen in the mixture. When you remind them of Aunt Susie, then it's like. I did that. I was kind to her because I, you know, I lost that hundred grand in the business deal. <laughs> <laughs> so just that presence, caring, that sense of um, we're we're here, we care for you, uh, we're present, we lo- we love you. That and that says everything. That's a, that's a, a huge contribution. Jennifer, I want to do a, a quick commercial for Zen Hospice. Um, Zen Hospice. Is you want a microphone? Zen Hospice is in San Francisco, and um, they have a wonderful volunteer program, and the training is really powerful, and you serve for a year. But if you are facing a um, situation in which you're caregiving, they have a wonderful um, tape series called Being a Compassionate Companion um, for the Dying. And it's they're just a wonderful organization. I thoroughly recommend going through their training and becoming a volunteer in service of the dying because it's an amazing experience. But if you have someone to care for, they can help you with bereavement services and support. Thank you. Yeah, also, just in, uh, I, I, I thoroughly agree, and I'm not, not putting down Zen Hospice, but isn't it interesting how we say the dying? Yeah. Like... That's another species too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the the us us who are the born are also the dying. You know, we we are we are it. You know, the the world is us, and so that 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 sense of um, uh, encouraging that kind of compassionate caring for the <laughs> they they may be more slowly dying or they're not apparently <laughs> not apparently dying, but. Uh, to have that in mind is is that 
Yeah, it's not just like some sort of magical line that we cross that when we get the diagnosis that that's it, but more that we relate to each other in, in this way, that Jennifer's dying. Mm-hmm. I should care for her. Yeah. We did uh, the nine contemplations of Atisha, which is like oh, another list. <laughs> it's a list. Um, it's uh, things like um, every moment my death approaches faster and my body is slowly disintegrating now. So you meditate on these nine contemplations of Atisha, which was a great way to be also dying. (laughs) (laughs) You are anyway. (laughs) But one is merely consciously doing that. Well, I'd I'd like to demur. (laughs) Uh, You were speaking earlier today about um, kind of like acting, acting in the moment. And I'm thinking about my cousin who died of ALS. And I, you know, at 23, I was trying to comfort her. I was not much of a comfort at 23. But the thing that I remember is that she had one night crawled into the kitchen and stuck her head into the oven and turned on the gas because she wanted to die. And so I, and, and then my stepmother died of uh, Alzheimer's. She was tied up in a knot in a bed for six years. And I suspect that both of those people would have liked someone to have listened to them and to help them exit in a different kind of way. Fair enough. That's that's your your point of view. Well, I, it isn't a point of view. It's like trying to understand what's appropriate. Mm. I think, kind of in the way that you were talking about. Mm. Yeah, certainly, I I can I can understand that, but it, it's also. And yeah, I don't think it's it's really anybody's right to to be a dictator over the lives of others. Well, it isn't to be a dictator, but it's to listen to Mm -hmm. what the other person is saying, Mm -hmm. I I guess is my point. Mm -hmm. It's not my right to make a decision for someone, but if someone says to me, this is happening to me, and this is what I want to to happen... I'd say it's it's their choice. I wouldn't stand in the way of it myself. But what I was saying is, as as a Buddhist monk... You know, our our rule and our training is that we we can't possibly agree to uh, advise or advise someone to to take their own life or take the life of another, and that on the understanding that that for whatever reason, if there's the t- deliberate taking of a life, there's there's going to be some negative karmic consequences that go that that go along with that. It, people ha- have a, a, a their own right to choose, yeah, and that's their, that's that's the person's business, and um, so that actually a friend of ours in Florida was the, was a lawyer for Terry Schiavo, and was was the, he was a major advocate. George Philos was is a Buddhist, <laughs> <laughs> and that he was the one sort of fighting for her, her side of the of the the question. So, but it's just that. As as a in observance of our monastic rule, I can't say yes. You should pull the plug. 
what people choose to do for their, and for their own reasons. That that's 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 your business, and that people make their own decisions, and, and then we live with the results of our own decisions. And sometimes we can be very at home with that, and sometimes it takes a lot of digesting. But uh, so it's. It's. Uh, I would say, as long as th people are bringing close attention to those situations, say, okay, what's really going to be for the best? What's really an act of kindness here? What, what's my role in this? Then, um, and then make the decisions that you do, and then be pr be ready to be the owner of your karma, you know, the, the, to receive the results of the decisions that we make. You know, um, when you had suggested um, that the uh, walking meditation this afternoon, when you come to the end of the path, it could possibly be the end of your life. And then when you turn around, um, that combined with the discussion right now has um, reminded me of um, the work that I have felt privileged to do with end of life. And the wisdom, um, there's typically five themes that, that come with that, which is, um, I love you, I forgive you, do you forgive me, thank you, and goodbye. And the wisdom of that is if we live our lives with those pieces, it's it's really um, what the Dharma is really about, mm -hmm. to be told. So um, this day feels incredibly rich because it really brings all of this to the fore and it really helps us to live well and with great integrity. Um, so thank you so much. So also what comes to mind is... Um, do do we say those do we say those things to ourselves? You know, uh, I love you to ourselves. I love you. I forgive you. Do you forgive me? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. So that that's actually also I would say. I mean, I haven't I hadn't heard of that little collection as a whole bundle before, but uh, that's uh, extremely skillful things to be. Reflecting on in terms of relating to your your own life. Well, Ajahn, I really believe that's the heart of the Metta Sutra. That's the heart of loving kindness in a different form. Mm. Truth be told. Thank you. Yes, over the side. Um, I was wondering if you had um, maybe advice and insight for people who are in the healing professions or medical professions um, that I'm aspiring to go into myself. And when it's your job to stop sickness and to stop pain and to alleviate the effects of aging, um, if there's anything even within that role that you can do to help people accept that those things are inevitable, 
even while it's your job to <laughs> kind of take them away. Yeah. Because it seems that in our culture, it's very much this, in the medical profession at least, it's like, I, you know, I come to you with this. If it doesn't go away, you failed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is the job to, to do what you can. But mm-hmm. like we've been saying all day, those things are eventually inevitable. So yeah. I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I think yeah, that's a good question. Thank you for bringing that up. One of the, one of Ajahn Chah's most uh, famous comments was when talked about um, dealing with his own illnesses was, "Don't doctors die too?" Because <laughs> they were saying, "Well, do this, do this, you can get better. Do this, and you'll recover. Do this, and you'll recover." And he says, yeah, as far as I know, doctors also die. Yeah. So part of it is also just the, the attitude that the doctors have, because even though the society says it's your job to fix me. The people in the medical profession, I was actually just chatting with someone, an acupuncturist who's here somewhere earlier today, um, how that tends to be the ethos of the medical profession is that the, jo- the doctor's job is to cure you, and if the doctor doesn't cure you, she's failed. You know that, and that uh, that's a, that's a, a um, I would say a major error. <laughs> And the, uh, the, the, the point you bring up is, is really important. So it's in a way, it's more that the doctor's holding that attitude as well, recognizing. There's a wonderful book I highly recommend um, called by a, 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 an Indian doctor who works in the States called Atul Gawande, called Complications. Oh, good. And he's got a, I think his first book was called Better. <laughs> and then the second <laughs> book is called Complications. <laughs> so, and it's about the dukkha of doctoring. It's about when doctors um, don't know what's happening. It's when uh, the, the, the uh, patient's symptoms don't, uh, don't make sense, when doctors make mistakes, when doctors are um, destructively incompetent. They've got their own internal problems that then get wreaked out on the patients. Um, and uh, it's, it's about the limitations of the doctor. And I, I realize, I think this is the first time I'd ever seen in print, like a, an allopathic doctor actually admitting anything other than omnipotence. <laughs> you know, that yes, I'm a doctor, and yes, we can fix it. And, and a whole book about, well, we might not be able to fix it, and this is why. So I felt that was a, that was a really good sign. He's, he writes for popular magazines like Harper's and New Yorker and such like and, but it's a really excellent book. Uh, uh, it ends with a with a uh, a, a, a kind of a, a triumphal <laughs> a triumphal case where the patient actually survives. <laughs> but it's really it's very honest and very helpful because he's reflecting on what it's like being a doctor when you're in those situations when you're newly qualified and you're suddenly you're put on call and you're and it's your choice and what it was like making wrong choices or what it's like not being able to get the respirator in without hurting the patient. And what's, what's that, what does that feel like for the doctor rather than just being on the patient end? Most of us think, gee, does know what they're doing? What it's like for the doctor when they, when they can't get it right. And so recognizing our limitations is extremely important. And being also ready to, rec- to see, well, I can only do so much. I care deeply, but beyond this, I can't do any more. And it's not because I don't care, and not because we're not trying, but it's like the car is already over the cliff. There's, n- there's no more you can do. It's, it's going to hit the rocks. There's, there's no backing off point here. 
that we, we can't, uh, we have no more say in this. And so to me that recognizing that, in a way, recognizing our limits and not seeing that as a weakness, because our culture says um, that's, that's bad, that's a weakness, You're, you know, it's your fault. This patient's died and it's your fault. If you were just a bit smarter, just a bit more competent, if you just picked the right medicine, then. But and and again, it's not it's not just being passive or capitulating, it's or or just weaseling out of it. It's just no. At certain points, we recognize it's the body that heals itself. The doctor can only do so much to help that to happen, and and beyond a certain amount, a certain limit, there's no more that the doctor can do. And that being uh, the more that a, a physician or a nursing person, they can really be at home with that. Then that can be communicated to the patient. If the doctor's not at home with that, and there's that feeling of oh, guilt, oh gee, I failed, that's terrible, or they're going to sue me, yeah. <laughs> then that, that's what's communicated to the patient. So I feel that it's, it's an important thing to, to be at home with our limitations and to not see it as a weakness, but just seeing that's a natural order. You know, when you say, when you look at one of these beautiful bay trees or oak trees, you don't say, why aren't you bigger? Yeah. You're a pretty small tree. <laughs> like, if you really had it together, you'd be at least 30 feet taller than you are. <laughs> you know. Or like you look at your hand and say, that's a really short finger. <laughs> yeah. I, my, well, you know, if I really wanted to, I might, you know, I'd make my fingers longer. You know. At least one of them, that would be handy. <laughs> like an eye eye, you know. But, you know, you should be able to do something about that. It's ridiculous. You can't just decide to make nature work in a different way. It's like, no, this is the shape of the hand, oh, this sort of genetic pat, you know, patchwork, it comes out like this, it's this size. Like the oak tree is that shape, it's that size. So similarly with the body, it's like there's so much that can be done to, to, to relieve its, its ailments and, and that uh, after a certain point it's out of the hands of the doctor. The medicine can't do any more, the body's energies can't do any more. It's just, no, the system has, has failed. It's, it's, it's disintegrated, it's not, it can't integrate anymore. The disintegration has taken over. It's not a matter of will, it's not a matter of weakness. Like, like climbing up Mount Dana, it's like, no. <laughs> Legs stop until we get more oxygen in the body. There's, it was really interesting. It's like, there was no choice. I couldn't just sort of, just keep going. It's like, no. So realizing that, yeah, that's just being in tune with the natural order. And then... Uh, then you find that you're you're able to function in a much more um, helpful and, and and realistic way. You're not creating false hopes, and you're able to actually much more effectively attune to what's really doable. Thank you. Okay, well, I think that's a, a good point to close on. It's just before five now, so um, we'll finish with our. Uh, a little sharing of blessings. So this is a traditional uh, chant that, that we do, um, often at the the end of the day. Well, afterwards we finish on it. So, um, again, if you're familiar with the uh, 
the words of these, um, this teaching, then just uh, do join in if you like. Otherwise, just uh, take this as an opportunity and uh, we can share the blessings, whatever goodness has come forth from today, to maybe particularly to our own ailing, aging, dying bodies <laughs> and those near and dear to us or those who've, uh, who've passed away to dedicate the, the goodness of this day to, to everyone. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life, May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Very good. Be well. We have a, a couple more short announcements to, to make before everyone departs, so if you <coughs> would like to speak. I have a dramatic little story to tell you, which is um, that um, there's a monastery in North Vietnam with 400 monks and nuns in it, and a couple weeks ago, they were meditating, holding their meditations while the windows were being broken all around them in the monastery and um, doing their loving-kindness meditation. Um, they are uh, monks and nuns um, who are following the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh of nonviolence. And just uh, last night... Um, their monastery was attacked again by the North Vietnamese security forces 
and the monks and nuns were taken into trucks, many of them beaten, and no one knows where they have gone. Um, the North Vietnamese government is sensitive to public opinion, and um, so we can be helpful. And I do feel that sometimes we don't realize in the United States that part of our role as lay sangha is to protect, support and protect our monastics quite actively when needed. And um, what you can do, the president of Vietnam is coming to the United Nations this coming Thursday, and it would be very wonderful if um, people voiced their concern about the monks and nuns. And so I, I have some papers here. If you have any sanghas that um, could help with this, I think immediate action could, it's just essential. I mean, we know what happened in Tibet uh, to so many beautiful uh, monastics. Um, I like to say our monastics. It's our job. Anyway, um, uh, the name of the monastery and the site that you can go to is Help Bat Na, like help, and then a bat, and then na is N-H-A dot org. Help Bat Na N-H-A dot org. And if you go to the site, they have a live video of what happened last night as well as more information for you. And I also have a piece of paper. And this is like a five-minute thing to do. So if many people could do that, that might make a big difference, especially those of us who have been helped by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. It would be an act of uh, uh, gratitude. Thanks. And... Um our last request. Thank you um, all for coming and, and again sharing in your potluck and, and offerings today, um, both to Spirit Rock and to Abayagiri. It's very much appreciated. And my last request for you all today would be to remind everyone to take home their serving um, utensils and dishes. Turn right when you leave Spirit Rock, of course. And if you have a moment to help us put away your chair and your cushion back, we very much appreciate it and see you soon. Two more. Oh. Wait, 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 wait. Don't move. <laughs> two, two more short announcements. One to remind you about November first, day-long uh, benefit Sylvia and I are doing with uh, Mary Pafford and Maggie Norton at the Viable Vineyards. Wine will not be served. <laughs> um, November first, so please do come along for that. And also the next day-long here, uh, I will not be leading it, the monastic day-long, but Ajahn Ananda Bodhi, one of the nuns from our community in England, she'll be doing the. Uh, the midwinter one, so that uh, I will be away in Thailand. I plan to be anyway. And so she has very kindly offered to fill in for me. So please do come along for that. That's, I think, shortly after Christmas. 27th of December, thank you. So in the deep midwinter, very poetic this year. So in the deep midwinter, that will be Ajahn Ananda Bodhi. So please do come along for that. Go well. Thank you.